Well, thank you, Paul, and thank you for the invitation to speak in the Lineker Lectures, uh, and I read the Daily Mail every day, cover to cover. Um, as you see, I've actually changed my title. I was supposed to be talking about the end of Roman civilization, a man-made disaster, query. And this was because I was asked for a title some time back, and I desperately thought of a title. And actually, it's a really silly title, because, yes, of course, it's a man-made disaster. It's just a question of which particular aspect of humans you attribute it to. And I had thought that I was actually going to be talking about whether Roman civilization was brought down in part by environmental change uh, triggered by humans. But, in fact, I did do a bit of work on this, and I found that just didn't work. It, it didn't work uh, because the answer is quite simply no, it wasn't. So I thought I'd actually do something a bit more topical and look at a society in rapid downhill, if one's allowed to call it downhill, downhill transition. And the reason for doing this is obviously partly because of the current situation we're in, hence the uh, thing on the screen, uh, which, if you can't read it, is wondering whether we're entering a new dark age down here. Um, but also partly because looking at what other people have talked about, I noticed that most of the transitions have been slow transitions, in a sense, in a sort of progressive, if we're allowed to say, progressive sense, uh, towards more and more sophistication and more and more complexity. And that's been the main theme of the lectures. So I thought I'd look at something completely different, something that is fast... Uh, and also downhill. And obviously, when I say downhill, I'm always putting it in inverted commas uh, in order to be you know, carefully politically correct. I don't want to you know, attribute uh, bad things to people in any period of history. But before I actually talk about what I'm going to talk about, I just thought I'd tell you why I didn't talk about uh, Rome and environmental disaster and I'm afraid the real reason to say this is because I found two wonderful slides, uh, which are too good not to share. Um, I thought I was going to be talking about environmental disaster, and I had two splendid examples. Uh, one of them, in fact, thanks to Hannah Friedman, who's there. Uh, this is a project in Jordan uh, at the Wadi Fainan, uh, and what you're seeing here is an air view with the Wadi snaking through. This is a big site a settlement site here, and all around are copper mines, uh, started in the pre-Roman period, but developed to their fullest extent in the Roman period, uh, and they're cultivating fields here, and you can see the ancient field systems quite clearly uh, in this area here. Uh, and when they're extracting the copper, they're also smelting it, and these here are big dumps of copper smelting ore. And a recent project has looked at this in great detail. It's looked at the environmental evidence in particular, and what they've shown is that, for a start, the Romans, in smelting all this, denuded the entire landscape of anything they could remotely burn, and therefore, in fact, turned it into desert. And furthermore, in dumping all this copper waste, in fact, completely polluted the soil around which is shown on this graph here. What you're looking at is distance from these dumps. And then you're looking at the number of seeds that a particular plant, wild barley, produces. So they've looked at the modern seed production of these particular plants. And as you can see, 
Uh, there it's decent, but as it were, near the copper, uh, it falls off dramatically. And that is obviously Roman pollution over 2,000 years ago, as it were, still affecting this landscape. So there's no doubt at all the Romans tried very hard to destroy their environment. Uh, it wasn't for lack of trying. Uh, the other example uh, is from Spain, in northwest Spain. These are the gold mines of northwest Spain, the most spectacular of them, uh, Las Medulas. And here, what they did is they canalized water onto the site. They then used the water, in fact, as a mining technique. They dug shafts, flooded them, and in fact destroyed the mountain in that way. It was a technique called ruina montium, very appropriately, the ruin of mountains. They then also used the water, obviously, to flush out the gold, and then finally to flush the, uh, the detritus down into the valley. And what you're seeing here, basically, is a hill that originally looked like that, uh, that has been you know, reduced to this uh, by Roman mining. So again, not for lack of trying. But, of course, uh, the Romans didn't have the superb techniques that we have for destroying our environment. And actually, looking at this slide, you will see, if you look in the background, there is a great modern mine which is carving out, ruinering this hill as rapidly as it can, obviously with modern earth-moving equipment. I think there's another one over there. And then also in this slide, you can see a bit of atmospheric pollution being produced by something there. So in a sense, I mean, in, it's, I think there's somebody trying to get in. So, it, so <laughs> uh, either that or it's a very large mouse. So, uh, so, uh, so I hope you'll forgive me for that slight digression, but I think I mean, these two examples are rather splendid. And in fact, when one looks at it in detail, I mean, the reason for not lecturing on Roman uh, destruction to destroying their environment are things like this ice core evidence. Uh, when it snows, snow captures pollution in the air and takes it down to earth, where it then settles and then forms part of the ice core. And by drilling through the ice core, you can actually trace pollution through time. And these two graphs here, they're working from ancient prehistory through to the present day. Nought is us, and these are 1,000 years back in time. The top one is lead pollution, and this is copper pollution. And you can see that basically both lead and copper go up into the Roman period, I mean, as I say, they're, they're, they're doing their best. Uh, it then falls off, uh, and obviously it's only in the modern period that you get an exponential rise, uh, which is probably still continuing today. So the reason for not talking about it is really that this doesn't remotely match what we are doing um, at the very present moment. Now, that progression, you will note, falls off... Uh, at the end of the Roman period. And that's what I'm going to be talking about. And in my book, which Paul was so polite about, I produced these, I thought, very daring graphs showing the decline of, I called it economic complexity, but you could probably have called it prosperity, uh, through time, from 300 AD 
through to 700 AD in five regions of the Roman world. And in some cases, the fall is a slow one, North Africa, North and Central Italy, uh, and the Levant. And they happen at slightly different times. As you'll see in the Levant, it's happening uh, after 500, whereas in North Africa and, and in Italy, it's happening actually from around 400. But also, in two cases, Britain and the Aegean world, there is a very rapid fall. Now, I produce those graphs, and obviously there's a lot of text saying how you know, very tentative they are and how they're just an attempt to sort of model what was happening. But actually, interestingly, they seem to be accepted. I mean, the book's been criticised for all sorts of things, but actually no one has said this is complete rubbish. Uh, and in fact, most people accept that that's roughly what happened. And what I'm going to be talking about today is just looking at one of those dramatic changes, Britain. And I've chosen Britain for three reasons. Firstly, because actually the archaeology from Britain is extraordinarily good. It's much better, for instance, than the archaeology from the Aegean world. I mean, people have been working on this period well for decades. Um, secondly, obviously, because it has a degree of topicality, uh, it's quite nice that, as it were, Britain is going through this free fall in the 5th century. Uh, sorry, nice in the sense of interesting. Um, and thirdly, I've chosen it because, in fact, many of the sites in Britain will be at least sort of vaguely familiar uh, to many of you. So, in a sense, I'm talking from uh, a knowledge base already. If we look at what happened in Britain, we need to start with Roman Britain. Now, Roman Britain displays considerable prosperity in the countryside, um, at the very least at the aristocratic level. This is the location of rural sites known as villas. And as I'm sure you know, villa just means a smart site in the countryside. It's got something like uh, hypercoursed baths or mosaics or a bit of both. Uh, there are a lot of them. Uh, they are obviously concentrated in the southeast segment, but there are a smattering of them elsewhere, though virtually nothing um, in Devon and Cornwall. They're very varied. Um, some of them are spectacularly rich uh, and heavily Romanized. Others of them are you know, much more discreet settlements. And just to illustrate that, I mean, these are two... Uh, villa mosaics. The very largest one known, the one from Woodchester uh, in Gloucestershire, with Orpheus here charming the beasts on this great carpet mosaic um, here, reconstructed. I mean, it, it's pretty complete. Uh, unfortunately, it lies under a church graveyard uh, and is still there. You can see a complete reproduction of it at Prinich if you want to. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, this from way up north um, at Rudston in Yorkshire. Obviously, it's much, much smaller. It's far uh, less sort of obviously Roman. Uh, indeed, I mean, this, this scene here is Venus rising from the waves, sort of Botticelli style, uh, with a triton here. But uh, one, I think it's permissible to wonder whether there isn't a bit of the Celtic goddess in her. Um, and there are strange things like this bull here, 
uh, and a Latin inscription saying Taurus Homicida, uh, the murderous bull, and heaven knows what Taurus Homicida is doing there, I mean, alongside Venus rising from the waves. So uh, one might reasonably see that in sense if you, if you were at um, Chris Gosden's talk as a, as a mosaic displaying some of the sort of continuities from you know, pre-Roman times into Roman times underneath a veneer of Romanness. It wouldn't be totally fantastic to interpret it in that sense, whereas this thing here obviously is 100% Roman and it would look perfectly good in Rome itself. So, in the countryside, plenty of evidence of prosperity and complexity. Obviously, I've, we've looked at a, an aristocratic level, but you could find it lower down as well. Um, equally, obviously, Roman Britain has lots of towns. This is Alan Sorrell's wonderful reconstruction uh, of the Forum in Verulamium. Uh, and towns are obviously centres of wealth with stone or brick-built buildings, tiled roofs, quite complex architecture, and they're also centres of sophisticated activity. I mean, here in the Forum, there's a market going on, there's a religious procession, there are some animals and some people with axes, they're about to be sacrificed, presumably in this temple here. There's probably a load of political notables entering the Forum here, and some rather risque entertainers in action over there. So, I mean, Roman Britain has those things we call towns, which are sophisticated, expensive, complicated places. I mean, no one disputes that. And interestingly, it's not just uh, big towns, the places which arguably grew up because of political pressure and the need to have administrative centres. Places like St Albans here, or London. Uh, what also grew up were these things that archaeologists call small towns, which grow up spontaneously, because there's no administrative reason for them, along the road systems. And those are all, well, we'd probably actually think of them as large villages, but they're, they're substantial settlements growing up along the road system, and they have to be emerging for economic reasons. I mean, they must be serving some local uh, economic function. And indeed, in Roman Britain, there's plenty of evidence that the economy has moved towards considerable specialisation uh, with, consider with wide-ranging distribution of specialised goods. Uh, best seen with pottery... And this is one particular kiln uh, called Oxfordware, uh, because the kilns are discovered in Headington, uh, producing this kind of stuff. It's wheel-turned, uh, it's covered in a slip, it's decorated with a slip here, it's also got rouletting on it, it's fired in a serious kiln. And what's more, I mean, not only is it, you know, sort of, properly made, uh, and actually very standardised material. It's also distributed widely. This map shows the fine spots of one particular type of Oxfordware uh, pottery. Uh, and in fact, in Britain, the archaeology is so good that one can even do quite sophisticated things with maps like this, <laughs> because Oxfordware is just one 
of the kilns producing pots in this period. There are also a number of other ones, including new forest ware down here. And interestingly, by studying this map um, in detail, one can see that there's a lot of distribution down the waterways, both east and west, and also to some extent to the north, but much less to the south. And that can be shown to be because, in fact, of the competition from new forest ware. I mean, these are competing com commercial centres with new forest ware effectively keeping out Oxford ware from its, from its own um, commercial territory. Another instance of the, what you might call the, the sort of market development within Roman Britain, coins. Romans uh, mint copper coins. Uh, copper coins are easily lost and they are found in huge quantities. Uh, and thanks to the portable antiquity scheme, which I'm sure many of you know about, we now know an awful lot more about this than we knew even a few years ago. This is a map. Portable antiquity scheme is, if you find something, and it's mainly metal detectorists finding them, you can take them to a portable antiquity scheme officer. There's one in Oxford. They will register the find. They may offer to buy it off you. And then they will, as it were, take a photo of it and log it. And at least it's known that that thing came from that particular place. That's how the scheme works. Uh, and this map is produced by one of the people who works on that, Sam Moorhead, at the British Museum. And this is fine spots of coins of an emperor um, reigning between those years in Britain. They're just everywhere. Um, coins were a feature of Roman life. And in fact, on the Portable Antiquities Scheme, there are, I think, 70,000 coins so far have been registered for Britain. That's obviously between the 1st century and the very early 5th century. So I hope I've shown Roman Britain is quite a sophisticated place economically. What happens afterwards? Now, what happens afterwards is actually rather more difficult to illustrate because there isn't actually that much to show. And in some sense, it's the sort of difficulty of illustrating it that's the entire point uh, to what happened afterwards. But I'll give it a go. Um, villas totally disappear. Um, I'll discuss later problems of dating, but nobody thinks that anybody is living in anything like a villa by 450. Uh, and instead, rural settlement is all uh, in wood, looking something like this. Admittedly, that's a particularly rough type of thing. That's more like it, a sort of small wooden hall-type structure. I'm looking at Helena Hammer over there, uh, who <laughs> I hope will agree. Um, but Villa's just gone. <coughs> Towns basically go. There is some continuity of life in a few places, uh, in particular Canterbury, possibly Dorchester, um, quite near Oxford. But for the most part, no continuity of life whatsoever. Uh, and again, uh, and we'll look at this in a little bit more detail, this seems to have happened by around 450. Um, nobody thinks there's much, certainly, I don't think anybody argues there's as much going on in a town by 500 AD. So they've pretty much gone by then. And in the west of Britain, um, political life has certainly reverted to the old 
prehistoric fortified sites, uh, places like the Rock of Tintagel, which is a major site in the 5th and 6th century, obviously extremely easy to defend. There's a narrow neck of land that links it with the mainland, which was obviously very easy to hold, or to hill forts um, like South Cadbury uh, in North Somerset. Um, this one has been excavated. These are Iron Age, an Iron Age double um, bank and ditch, formidable defences, reoccupied in the 5th century, known through excavation, and they've excavated a hall, which we'll see here in the middle, and they've also excavated the south, the, the gate, the main gate into the site. And those excavations, which were done in the 60s, uh, the, gate, the excavation at the gate, for instance, this is the Iron Age bank, but here the roadway was found to have a structure built over it in the 5th century, and this is a possible reconstruction of what that structure looked like, a timber tower. Obviously, what they actually found were these beam slots here. So this is, uh, well, it's fanciful, but plausibly fanciful. Um, but this is, as it were, the 5th century reoccupation of Cadbury. Um, and in the middle of the site, um, a wooden hall, known, obviously, from its post holes. This is what they found. And what you will see there is that, obviously, everything is in wood. And that, again, is what happens in Britain. There is no building in mortared brick or stone uh, between about 400 and about help. I'm just trying to remember when Wormuth Jarrow is. It's 650? So, yeah, about 650. Nothing. Nothing is built in brick or mortared brick or stone. Everything is either wood or dry stone. And furthermore, with the exception of a tiny number of buildings, for instance, a church in Canterbury, as far as we know, all the former brick and stone buildings fall apart. They're just not used. Um, the, only one, the only building we actually know, and it's from documentary evidence conclusively, is a church in Canterbury, which Augustine reuses when he comes back. So quite a dramatic change. Um, sorry. Um, with it, an almost total disappearance of evidence of a market economy and of any specialization of um, production. There are the odd, interesting smatterings of evidence of trade, in particular from the west of Britain, some trade extraordinarily, with the Mediterranean. This is pottery from that South Cadbury site of the 5th, 6th century, and this pottery, most of it, is Mediterranean. These are actually amphorae fragments from the East Mediterranean. Fascinating, quite enigmatic, probably tied up with tin, but actually, in economic terms, it's more romantic than actually significant. There are tiny quantities of this stuff. I mean, you're talking about very, very, very few shiploads of things I mean, as that we can document um, coming into Britain um, in that period. And if we look at local production, uh, what happens is all those pottery industries go, probably already by about 425. It's difficult to date with precisely, but they all die, and all 
industries using built kilns and using, even using the pottery wheel disappear. There is no use of the pottery wheel after about 425 in the whole of Britain, which is an extraordinary fact, but seemingly true. And as I said, Britain is very well documented. People have been working on this for years. Instead, what you get is you get stuff like this. This is from Canterbury, one of the few urban sites that was um, settled probably throughout the 5th century. Uh, and some of it is decorated, like these pots up here, but all of it uh, is hand-shaped. And uh, the experts say it's, it's fired in, in clamps, in other words, in sort of big bonfires that you build above ground, and it's not fired in, as it were, a, a built kiln. I, I depend on what I read there. I don't know whether that's really true. But you can see that's quite a... Sorry, it's not quite a big change. It's a massive change from what we were looking at with Oxfordware. And with this pottery, uh, I mean, admittedly, there might be some trade hidden in there, but this stuff is not going to be moving very far. Um, uh, it's very, very local. How rapid was the change? And here we have a problem, uh, because obviously we need some good dates. Um, scientific dating isn't going to help. It's not precise enough uh, within you know, this narrow period that we actually want to date change uh, within. And the difficulty is that we're looking at a period where material goods either disappear uh, or become very, very simple. And stuff like this, frankly, isn't datable with any kind of precision. And I should have said, I'm really sorry, very important, coins completely go. There are, from the late 5th through to the mid-7th century, thanks to the portable antiquity scheme, they've now found 20 copper coins from the Byzantine world in Britain. Now, that's fascinating and very, very interesting. But when you compare that to the 70,000 you know, from the earlier Roman period, I think one can reasonably say that coins go. To be absolutely precise, one has to say new coins go. To what extent old coins continue to be used is an interesting debate. Although, interestingly, at places like Tintagel, there are no coins. So arguably, in fact, there are, you can show that coins, in fact, disappear, not just new ones don't um, uh, enter. So lost coins... You've lost types of pot that are actually changing through time in a recognisable way. You've got no dating evidence. So exactly how fast this change is, is open to debate. And it will, as far as I can tell, remain open to debate until somebody comes up with some wonderful, very, very, very precise way of dating things. Um, and there is a certain amount of discussion. And there are some bits of evidence that point to some continuities into the 5th century. The most famous is a building in Verulamium, um, which was excavated decades ago. And there, what was found was a Roman aristocratic house with mosaics. And being Roman of the late 4th century, that was very precisely datable to around 370. 
coins would have been found under the floors. So that, you've got a good date there. After that, clear dates go, but a lot of things happen to this house. Firstly, the mosaics wear out and are repaired. There are patches put into the mosaics. And somebody builds a corn-drying oven here. That's obviously part of the Roman house, sort of continuing as a Roman house. I don't know how many years that's taken one forward, but it's taken one quite a long way forward from 370. Then somebody demolishes the complete the Roman house totally uh, and builds instead a wooden building of which this is the um, footings set into the ground. And then somebody puts a trench which cuts through the footings of the wooden building and into that trench they lay a wooden water pipe. Now, wooden water pipe suggests you know, urban life in Verulamium going on at the point that that wooden water pipe is put in. But, of course, it's anybody's guess quite how tight or otherwise um, this chronology is. It's taking one into the 5th century. Is it taking one to 420, 430, 440, 450, 460? There's actually no way of knowing. So, unfortunately, exactly how fast all this is happening uh, is obscure. But it's certainly fast. It's certainly, in archaeological terms, very fast. And so what you see is a transformation of the economy um, for which I don't think we've even got a word. I mean, as you know, we've been discussing whether to use recession or depression. I mean, this is beyond a depression. <laughs> this is pretty much a collapse of any kind of sophisticated, complex economy. And what I want to do now is just explore how deep that change um, goes. And I'm going to do it in two ways. First of all, I'm going to look at how far, and I'm sorry, I'm deliberately using this, this language, how far back in time the Roman economy is swept by these changes. How far back into prehistory do you have to go to find similar conditions to 5th century Britain? You might initially suppose well, the obvious thing is that maybe we go back to pre-43 AD uh, when the Romans turn up. The Roman state collapses, so we go back to a late pre-Roman Iron Age situation. But that isn't the case. The late pre-Roman Iron Age is considerably more sophisticated in economic terms than the 5th century in post-Roman Britain. It has, it doesn't have towns, but it has substantial settlements that are, sorry, when I say it doesn't have towns, it doesn't have towns in inverted commas, I mean, what is a town? Uh, but it has things that one would happily define as at least proto-urban. Uh, places like the major hill forts, this is Danbury, uh, as it probably appeared in around 100 BC. There's quite a lot of places like that uh, in immediately pre-Roman Britain. It's also got evidence of, uh, of some trade 
and considerable specialised production. This is a chieftain's grave uh, from, found at Welland Garden City, and obviously at the back are five amphorae, presumably containing wine, which have been imported from Gaul. Also, this pottery here is Roman and imported, but also very interesting at the front, this is British, and it's a mix, but quite a lot of it is actually wheel-turned and uh, imported regionally uh, within southern Britain. There are regional identifiable pottery industries in pre-Roman Britain. Nothing like that in 5th century um, post-Roman Britain. Also in pre-Roman Britain, there's coinage. Uh, and this again is turning up now increasingly through the portable antiquities scheme. It's coinage in silver. It used to be thought that this was produced essentially for political reasons as sort of gifts to fellow chieftains. But actually, it's sufficiently common and enough of these things have been found that it's pretty certain that it is also... It may have been partly for those reasons, but it's also pretty certain that it's being used actually as a medium of exchange. Uh, it's only in southern Britain, but pre-Roman southern Britain has a medium of exchange in the form of coins. And in fact, if we try... And this is sort of obviously very um, rough and ready. If we looked at pottery... I mean, how far back do we have to go to hit 5th century uh, Roman-British conditions? This is a very nice little thing produced by uh, Barry Cunliffe of pottery from Danbury. And obviously it's 6th century BC, 4th to 2nd century BC, and this is 1st century BC. And this stuff, quite a lot of its wheel turned... Some of it is imported from the continent, from the modern where Brittany and Normandy now are, and quite a lot of it is imported, in fact, regionally within Britain, particularly from Somerset. So this is certainly uh, much more evolved than 5th century British conditions. And if you're looking for 5th century British conditions, I think you're probably roughly around here. There's no wheel-turned pot in this, and most of it is um, locally made. But you're, you might be, as it were, somewhere around there. It's quite a startling thought. Now, obviously, you know, is pottery a really good indicator of this kind of thing? I would argue that it is, or it's potentially a good one, but I won't go into why. If anybody wants to ask me, I'm happy to um, answer um, questions about it. So that's one way of looking at the scale of change, and that comes up with quite a startling uh, result. The other way is to look and see how long it took for the economy to recover. Obviously a question which we are all in quite interested in, um, and you will be depressed to know at least 250 years. Uh, I'm sincerely hoping, incidentally, that our situation is not quite as bad as this. Um, but, in fact, 250 years until you get back to a late pre-Roman Iron Age situation. So, 250 years up to around 700, 
but that's only taking you back to the situation in around the year one. And just to illustrate that, I mean, by 700, you have got the emergence of the first towns and the first trading towns, the first post-Roman towns and trading towns in Britain. Uh, this is perhaps the best known, Hamwich, um, the site of Saxon Southampton, which has been extensively excavated. Um, obviously, this is a very hypothetical reconstruction, but it's based on pretty good evidence. That's what Hamwich looked like uh, in around 750. That's, I mean, actually, that's probably a bit more advanced than, say, Danebury, but we're in that kind of uh, world. Um, equally, if we look at pottery... The very first wheel-turned pottery industry is uh, made at Ipswich, where the kiln sites have been found, uh, and that is producing wheel-turned pottery and distributing it regionally. That's 8th, 9th century. That's the very first. Now, that isn't actually as uh, remarkable a distribution where, for instance, as the Oxford Ware pots. So we're actually not quite, we're not at the Roman situation, but we're probably, again, at a roughly a kind of immediately pre-Roman um, Iron Age situation. And finally, I mean, coins. Uh, coins, there are no new coins between uh, around 400 and the beginning of the 7th century. But towards the end of the 7th century, uh, sorry, in the 7th century, the Anglo-Saxons start to mint their own coins. Um, this is just a selection of them here, uh, sorry, here, in fact, with their Roman prototypes above. I don't know how clear, it probably isn't very clear. That's, that's my favourite. That's the wolf suckling the twins, and this is the Anglo-Saxon version of it um, below. So obviously they're taking Roman prototypes uh, in their... Uh, issuing of coin. And again, partly thanks to the portable antiquity scheme, we now know that this coinage by around 700 is quite common. Um, so that, for example, from Hamwich, um, there are now 129 coins known, and a lot of them already at the beginning of the 8th century. And also, the PAS scheme is turning up these sites which nobody knew anything about which are suddenly producing quite large numbers of coins. Again, perhaps this is, you know, basically a bit like the Iron Age coinage, where maybe, I'm, actually I'm afraid I haven't got figures for the Iron Age coinage, but I suspect we're looking at this sort of pre-Roman Iron Age situation. If we ask, you know, when does the economy start to look like the Roman economy again, I really don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't until the 10th or early 11th century it'd be rather difficult to find, you know, the, the comparanda, and, and anybody can shoot holes in any of these comparanda anyway. I mean, this is very, very broad brushstroke stuff, uh, which I'm afraid is what I specialise in. Um, so, big change. Very rapid, very dramatic, and essentially downhill towards disintegration. Now, you'll have noticed all about the economy. That's what I've been talking about. For the simple reason that the economy is what shows up best archaeologically and the written texts are, <coughs> frankly, rubbish. Um, there are no dates 
in British history between 410 and 597, and even the date 410 is disputed. So for a couple of centuries, we've got no dates, uh, and essentially we enter what, if you were feeling generous, you'd call a proto-historic period. If you were feeling slightly more pessimistic, you'd say you'd sort of re-enter a prehistoric period in terms of the written documentation. So the archaeology, we're heavily dependent on the archaeology. It would be very, very nice to know what this meant in other areas of life. Did it mean a complete reshaping, for instance, of social organisation? And that, actually, we can't tell. It's perfectly possible, at least theoretically, that the person who, you know, the, 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 the family that lived on this, uh, you know, moved and lived in this. It, that isn't impossible. In the sense, the social structures might actually have continued. We can't really tell. And, in fact, there is an argument for saying that they probably did uh, because the Britons, of all the people of the Roman Empire were the most successful at fighting off the Germanic invaders. The very last part of the entire Roman Empire to fall to Germanic invaders was North Wales uh, in Gwynedd uh, in 1282 to Edward I. And possibly that is because of the continuity of a social structure, the sort of thing that Chris Gosden was talking about, possibly even from you know, pre-Roman times, through Roman times, into post-Roman times. That's extremely hypothetical. But it isn't actually impossible. Uh, and we just can't tell, and there's no way of telling. And, and in fact, intriguingly, I mean, there is some evidence, uh, at least, for instance, of pride in Romanness, even in quite remote parts of Britain. The evidence comes from the the inscribed stones of West Britain, in particular from Wales. Um, in West Britain, what we now call Wales, uh, there are a large number of these sorts of inscribed stones. This is one of the most spectacular, uh, which is now Margam. Uh, and that's obviously a drawing of that particular stone. It's a grave marker, and it says Bodvok Hick Yakit, Bodvok uh, lies here, Phileus, the son of Catatigianus, and the nephew of Eternus. Um, it's kind of rough, uh, but it's Latin, uh, and it's an inscription. Uh, and inscriptions are very, very Roman things to do. Anglo-Saxons didn't put up inscriptions, um, nor did pre-Roman Britons. This person, arguably, is saying, I am, you know, I am Romanized. Uh, and there are lots of them. Um, here they all are, as it were, in West Britain. It's an extraordinary fact, that, but true, that there are more inscriptions, or sorry, more monumental inscriptions from 5th and 6th century Britain than there are from Roman Britain. They're all things like, sorry, the thing we were looking at is one of the best. They're all a bit like that. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that the collapse of economic structures is going to, as it were, change absolutely everything. I mean, it's possible that things, in fact, you know, can, other areas of life can 
um, see their way through difficult times. Now, finally, it would be reasonable of you to ask, why does this happen? Well, it just must be uh, connected with the end of Roman rule. The chronology is just so tight. Um, and that could be two slightly different things. It could be, in part, the collapse of the state and the state's impact on the economy. For example, producing coins, requiring taxation in money, which in fact forces people to enter a market economy, uh, distributing coins for its own purposes when it's buying things, and in particular, for example, in the north, paying a lot of soldiers with money raised in the Mediterranean, which they're then going to spend up in the north. So that element undoubtedly might be important. But what happened in Britain didn't happen all over the Roman Empire. In the rest of the Roman Empire, in the rest of the West, the decline, as I showed it in that first graph from my book, is a much more slow thing. It has to be the case that what happened in Britain was peculiarly disruptive, and it must be to do with the arrival of the Anglo-Saxons, and not just the arrival of Anglo-Saxons. There were also Irish raiding in the West, for instance, the people who captured Patrick and took him home to Ireland, where he then converts the Irish to Christianity. There are Picts invading from the north, and it's safe to say that the uh, Romano-Britons are also breaking up uh, into individual kingdoms. And that must be a very significant factor. Um, and I think, I mean, interestingly, until you know, sort of 20 years ago, um, scholars rather discounted warfare and uh, the disruption of warfare as a factor in historical change. It was certainly very unfashionable amongst archaeologists sort of come back into fashion, uh, I think largely because one's seen what you know, happens in the Balkans and one can imagine what might have happened in the Soviet Union if, as it were, when the Soviet Union broke it, had fallen apart, they then all started fighting each other. So warfare, I think, must be playing a major role. But the other thing, which I think is very, very, very important and which is relevant to us today, is to realise that the scale of change has to be connected to the very complexity of the Roman economy. If the Roman economy had been a series of essentially local economies with people making pots and selling them within, say, a 20-mile radius and essentially self-sufficient, then it's very, very hard to see why the thing collapses with such totality and why you're taken from an economic situation of considerable complexity back to one that is deep uh, in prehistory. It's easier to understand if you think that the Roman economy was actually quite an evolved structure where if you were a peasant in Kent, you expect to buy your pot from a kiln in Oxfordshire uh, and where you expect to make your living by actually selling stuff uh, and, in fact, you know, having coin and needing all of that kind of complexity because those structures can break down. And when they do break down, of course, people 
don't have the local resources which they might otherwise have had uh, in order to cope. Now, we're in a far more complex world. Uh, we're in a world you know, where the whole thing is global uh, and there is you know, all this magnificent stuff, uh, you know, bits of paper which in theory represent money or don't or their toxic loans or their something else. Uh, uh, but obviously, and even our, you know, our manufacturing world is far, far more complex. And I suppose, that, I mean, the interest of the Roman period is it shows that complex structures can break down and when they do break down, it's very bad. I sincerely hope we are not facing... I don't think we are, but I'm probably over-optimistic. Thank you very much.